For those of you who have ever stepped behind the wheel of a car, it can be a lot of fun. For those of you that are new to driving, it will one day be a lot of fun. I love driving, the open road, good music playing, good company. But when that orange sign appears in the distance with a blinking light in the corner, it potentially spells disaster. You might have to merge, slow down, or heaven forbid, sit in traffic. That alone could be its own horror film. I love driving, but I think I speak for everybody who's ever been on a roadway when I say this. I hate road work. I hate it. When I first moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, one of the main roads into downtown was about a mile away from my house. It's called Providence Road. They were expanding the road from two lanes to four lane road with built-in turn lanes. Big deal. Okay. The reason they were doing this was because the housing along Providence Road had exploded, exploded for, year, for the past four previous years. Unfortunately for me, Providence Road was the main road we had to take to get anywhere, and it took forever. You remember this? You had to drive into work every day. It took forever. I'm sure you have been in a similar situation, especially if you've gone anywhere near. You don't even have to be on it, but near 380 or 423 these past four years. 35. Any of those roads these past couple of years. By my 10th grade year, the construction was done, it was complete, and it was so much easier to get where we wanted to go. No backups. And if there was a broken down car, then we just went into one lane, which created far less backups compared to when it was only a two-lane road, and you had to wait for other people to go, and it was bad. I mean, if you think about it, road construction is pretty time-consuming and interesting. Providence Road, believe it or not, had literally existed for hundreds of years. It used to be one of the trails that connected the town of Charlotte to the local Indian population dozens of miles south. It used to be a trading route. So unlike many roads, it was literally already there. It kind of only, be, it kind of only had to be upgraded. They had to build the road up by pouring asphalt or originally you know, rocks or something to make it higher for the water to drain. Soon gutters were added to the road to keep it from flooding. Then curbs to keep people walking along the side safe. Then yellow lines, stoplights, all with the purpose of getting people from point A to B faster. Road construction literally paved the way to the destination. It pointed you in the direction you needed to go and helped you get there. Today, we're going to talk about one of the best when it comes to road construction. Except he didn't build a highway or a six-lane Preston Road look-alike. He called out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the Baptist prepared the way for one, of, one greater than he. So let's begin. Turn with me to Luke 3. Luke 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 20. Luke Chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on your rows around you. You can grab one. Luke is in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke. John? Oh, we're not. Are we singing the song now? No, we're not going to go that far. Just Luke, chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. And here it says, John the Baptist prepares the way. For those of you that are freaked out, that are a little OCD, and you're like, we just started Luke, why are we in chapter 3? I'm saving one or two for Christmas time, so chill, okay? Chill out. Where are we starting here? This is so weird, AJ. He doesn't know how to count. He needs to play that game out there. He should play that game out there. AJ, 
why are we starting in chapter Good question. Eat before you come. <laughs> yes, you should worry. Chapter 3, verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Eterica and Traconitus, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Ananias, Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Thank you for all the grading up here. Excellent. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. The soldier also asked him, And we... What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not exhort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water. But he was mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So, with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. But Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Let's pray. Father, as we dive into your word today, I ask for clear minds as we examine the words that you would have for us. Lord, these are the words from you, words from God. And Lord, may we take these seriously and may we write them on our hearts and pull from the scripture what you would have us learn today. In your son's name, amen. So here are four areas I want to touch on tonight. It's your on your outline if you want to read along with me. It's the historicity. Of Luke, the calling of John, John calling others, and the call to hear. So we could call this the calling section. So let me start with the historicity of Luke. You look at the beginning of the chapter. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Vitria and Traconitus, and Lysanus, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Ananias and Caiaphas, 
the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. I mean, that's a mouthful. Like, it, it seems like a Star Wars prequel, like, rolling script. Like, it's just, in the beginning, in the 15th year of the reign of the Tiberius Caesar. I mean, it's, it is rich. Why does Dr. Luke do this? Isn't it interesting how many references he makes? So if you're writing fiction, so if you're writing stuff that is not real, you don't include a plethora of historical figures for people to double check. You make maybe one to give your story credence, but six different characters. I want to stress the historicity of Luke, and that just means what, how would historians see this? Do they see the book of Luke as true or false? Even the well-known skeptic and archaeologist Sir William Ramsey says this about Luke the historian and all his references in the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. He says this, I began with, a my, with my mind unfavorable to it. He's referring to Acts. For its ingenuity and apparent completeness of um, the Tiberian theory had at one time quite convinced me. He's saying, I didn't believe that Luke or Acts had any merits, even if they claimed all these places and people. He continues, It did not then in my line of life to investigate the subject minutely. But more recently, I found myself often brought into contact with the book of Acts as an authority for the, the topography, antiquities, and society of Asia Minor. It was gradually borne in upon me that in various details the narrative showed marvelous truth. Sir William Ramsey goes on to say in another writing, Luke is a historian of first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, he is possessed of a true historic sense. In short, this author should be placed along with the greatest of historians. This is what an archaeologist and skeptic says about the trustworthiness of the book of Luke. This is not a Christian. What archaeologists... Archaeologists refer to when they talk about Luke as an historian is his correct location of cities, personnel, and topographical locations. What I mean by that is, well, is the mountain over here? Well, I guess it is over here. Now we found a map that actually corroborates that what he said about where the mountain or the valley or the lake or whatever thing that used to be there that isn't there actually was there and it is there. He seems to nail it on the head every time. But you must remember that this was not the main thrusts of Luke's agenda. He wasn't sitting there going, okay, it's exactly here on the lake that this town is. He wasn't as concerned about this. His purpose wasn't to spell out a map for 21st century scholars. His purpose was to speak to the truthfulness of the messianic claims of a man named Jesus. That was the purpose of his book. If he spent so much time getting the secondary features of his book correct, locations of people, one must wonder how much more time he spent getting the first-hand account of the actions that took place during the ministry of Jesus correct. Does that make sense? If, we, if the secondary stuff, he spent so much time making sure he was correct, then the main stuff, we got to assume he probably spent equal, if not more time, making sure that they were, these were correct. <laughs> Two is the calling of John. If you read Luke 1 and 2 this week, which I, there's your homework. Read Luke 1 and 2 this week. You will have noticed that John was born to a barren woman who was related to Mary, the mother of Jesus. 
Other accounts have him literally jumping in the womb when his mother saw Mary carrying the baby Jesus and hers. It harkens back to another prophet of God, Jeremiah. If you remember him from the Old Testament, Jeremiah 1.5 states this. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. This is God speaking. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet of the nations. That's God speaking about the prophet Jeremiah as he is literally in the womb. While there is no direct reference to Jeremiah, I find it interesting that this motif seems to have continued on in the New Testament with its prophets, namely John, along with important figures being born to a barren woman. Remember Sarah, who bore Isaac, who would be the father or path builder for Jacob? Jacob, the man who represents Israel. All these Old Testament signs of importance and being set aside seem to come together in the life of John. All the motifs that we see for very important prophets in the Old Testament seem to be repeated here from this one guy who lives in the wilderness and eats, you know, honey and beeswax and bugs. Luke continues, this is verse 3. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. Does it not sound like road construction? Like, can you see some guy sitting there going, every valley and hill made low, we're going to make this path? I mean, I can just see some redneck country boy with a cowboy hat on laying out the laws of the land of how he's going to make 423. Like, every crooked shall become straight and rough place shall become level ways. Maybe not out by your house. That, that's really impossible for road construction. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Oh, he's not talking about roads. He's talking about a person. Again, it seems like John was in mind long before his arrival, doesn't it? I mean, Isaiah is talking about who? John. So we see all these motifs happen from the Old Testament that are suddenly placed on John. And now Isaiah the prophet is talking about John hundreds of years prior to John. It's kind of like what we talk about on Tuesdays. It's like, oh, all these prophecies are being fulfilled over and over and over. Here's the kingdom. It's happening. It's awesome. It's Matthew. If you want to read Matthew, it's good. The third point is John calling others. Notice the list of officials early on in the chapter. Tiberius Caesar, he represented the major leaders of the world at this point in history. Rome was known for its sensuality and demanded... To be you for you to become part of their system. To act Roman was the idol of choice for Rome. So when they spread Rome, they spread Hellenism. So this is just history. They spread this idea that this is what it means to be Roman. In a sense, Greek, same type of idea. But it's the same type of like this is how you act, this is how you marry, this is where you bathe, this is how you compete, this is how you serve in the army. To be Roman was to act a specific Roman way. That was the idol of choice. And the Jews constantly fought this idea. No, where Jews were not Roman. So he literally calls out him at the beginning. Then he calls, calls out Pontius Pilate, being the governor of Judea. He was a scheming man who switched allegiances to stay in power. He represented direct Roman rule of Judea. Then you have Herod being tetriarch of Galilee. He was the son of Herod the Great. Upon Herod the Great's death, his kingdom was divided up into three parts. Herod ruling Galilee. So Herod the Great's the one that killed all the babies early on in the book. He divides it up. When he dies, his three kids get it. Herod gets Galilee. His brother, Philip, tetriarch of the region of Ateria and Traconitus, 
Both were ruling elite that pushed Roman agendas, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Albaline, was also known as that as well. During the high priesthood, this is the cool part. This is how he nails history. So it's, I, I, I butcher the name. I don't know if it's Anias or Anas, Anas, I don't know. I butcher that name every time, and Caiaphas. So these are the two high priests of the time. Now there was only supposed to be one high priest in history. Only one high priest serves at a time. This, uh, this is officially at the time of Caiaphas as being high priest at this point. However, Ananias was not dead. He was just fired from his job by the Romans. And so he was still kind of in power. And his son, Caiaphas, was his puppet, essentially. So Caiaphas was the one that reported to the Romans and was kind of the leeway between the Roman, their Roman leaders and the people. But everyone knew Ananias still had the power. That's why at the trial of Jesus, Ananias is the one who's talking to Jesus because everyone assumes that he really has the power. But officially, Caiaphas is the one who's representing. He's a puppet. Okay? Compare who John the Baptist went after, though. Did John the Baptist go to the kingly palaces and the high market area? No, John's in the wilderness. He's going after the common folk, the common people. You'll be surprised if you do any theological reading on the book of John how much of kind of the social justice movement pulls from the gospel of John. Why? Because it constantly shows over and over again the type of people that Jesus was going after. He wasn't sitting at the courts of kings. He was sitting among the tax collectors and the soldiers and the farmers and the prostitutes and the people who needed the message. He went to the people, not the leaders. The leaders were slightly offended by what he had to say, even having him thrown in jail at the end. But John and Jesus call who? The fishermen? The fishermen. The fishermen. The tax collectors, soldiers, regular people. And how does he go about doing that? He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized. This is verse 7. You brood of vipers. Not a way we think about a revival starting here in Dallas. Like We don't think that's the opening line on any church growth book you're going to read anywhere. Right? But that. why does Luke use that? Why does Luke open... With you brood, you snakes. Essentially, go back to the garden. Genesis 3. The same people who tempted Adam and Eve. That's you. You brood of vipers. That's how he opens. Who warns you to flee from the wrath and come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to ourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit, good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What he's saying is this. Their ancestry will not save them. Well, I'm Jewish. I'm in. Check. I'm so lucky. I eat matzah. I'm in. Like, you know, that, it doesn't save them. Who they are, who bore them does not save them. Being Jewish won't save them. Bearing fruit is what will save them. And God can bear fruit even from the stones if he wants. If they choose not to, God will cut them off from the promise of Abraham. There are two types of responses for being called out for your sin. There is the one where we bow up and get angry. And there is the repentant heart that seeks forgiveness. 
I mean, we can think about that. We see this all the time. When's the last time you called somebody out for doing something wrong? And they've responded with, well, you did this. How often do you do that with your brothers and sisters? Blame shift. Now, pressing that button on the keypad. We do that so quickly. We blame shift so quickly. Do you do that? Do you bow up and get angry when you're confronted with your sin? Or are you repentant and seek forgiveness? Eh? This crowd, when confronted with this reality, is the latter. How awesome is that? They're the latter. They're not sitting there going, Did you just call us snakes? So we get a snake and have it bite. Like, they're not responding that way. They immediately ask, What then shall we do? They get it. Yeah, I'm a sinner. I'm screwed up. And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share them with one who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort, extort money from anyone by threats or for false accusation, and be content with your wages. John is not saying, This is how you are saved. Let me make that clear. John is not saying, this is how you are saved. He's not cutting Jesus out of the picture by telling you to open up a tunic store and sell them two for one. He's not. It's a great business idea, by the way. But he's not saying that. Okay? He's saying, this is what fruit looks like. This is what living out faith looks like. It's giving instead of collecting. Tunics. And we see, talk about Frisco. I mean, how many pairs of shoes or how many, how many clothes do we need? Are we collecting? Is our mindset to have, have, have? Or is it to give, give, give? What is it? If you're God, if you're God influencing your job and not your job influencing your God. Does that make sense? Is your God influencing how you work and not... Your job influencing what you worship. For the tax collectors, it was being fair. When in their position, they weren't expected to. No one expected a tax collector to be honest. Just like no one expects a lawyer to not be a liar in our society. Do what is not expected of you. What is not the stereotype. Everyone else who had their job was crooked. The tax collectors. It's using power for others and not for yourself. See the soldiers. How do the soldiers use their power? They extorted people. I mean, think about like, you know, movies you watch where they extort like mom and pop shots. We're going to offer you protection and you got to give us money. That's essentially what they did. We'll pay you, some, you pay us something a little under the table and we'll make sure nothing happens to your home or business. Using your power for others and not for yourself. And the last one he makes clear is it's being content and not greedy. He talks about wages. Where do you see yourself on that list? On those list of things, which one do you think you naturally fall into? On the flip side, where do you see yourself bearing fruit on that list? Where do you feel challenged to bear fruit? On that list. Where do you feel challenged to bear fruit on that list? 
as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water and he was mightier than I is coming. The strap whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat of the barn, but the chaff he will burn with a questionable file. Let me hit the fourth point, the smallest point. And that is this, simply, the call to hear. Will you hear the words of John? Make way the path of the Lord. Will you bear his compass? Will you bear his compass? This idea of taking the direction he gives you, taking it seriously. But knowing that that compass has some weight to it. It's not like easy. This is the way people responded. And I think it's still the way people respond today when they hear the gospel. That's this one. They don't trust the messenger and they simply try to do the works on their own for their own sake, thinking they are the end. That's the really holy people. I, I don't need this messenger. I think if I just do really good things, God will love me at the end of the day. He'll ignore all the bad things I've done. But if I just do enough good and I bring that to the table, I can show him my goodies when I die. Two, they trust the messenger and they follow the direction he is pointing. That's another way people respond. Yeah, make ways the path of the Lord. This is, these are the type of fruits I should bear. I'm going to do that. Second type of people. The third type of people, and these are becoming more and more common in our culture, is those that try to silence the messenger. Those who try to silence the messenger. Either through shame or degrading words or making people look down on them, mockery. Verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, and he locked up John in prison. So John had already, like, called out Herod for marrying his brother's wife while his brother was still alive. You can't do that. And he went, well, that's bad. I don't like John. And then John called him to repentance. He's like, well, that's added to your tally. Throw him in prison. People will try to silence the messenger. We might not have to throw a pastor in prison who makes us reflect on our own hearts. But we might hate his words. So you might not try to be the silencer. But how does your heart react to hard things? So how will you prepare the way of the Lord? And how will you respond to the call in your own life? That's what we're going to talk about during transformation groups.